She Did a Her Way podcast, episode 110 with Ariel Hyatt. Welcome to the She Did It Her Way podcast, a collective of interviews with top female entrepreneurs from around the globe who have done it their way. These women are disruptors, savvy, courageous, confident, innovative, decisive, unconventional, and humble. Our ladies have proven business models, have taken risks, and have failed only for success to follow. Join us as they share their stories, behaviors, habits, mindset, thought processes, and what it is like to be a woman who means business. And now, here's your host, Amanda Bolin. Hey, She Did It Her Way listeners. Happy Monday. I cannot believe, again, I'm saying December. It is It is December. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. It's gone by. And in Chicago, we had our first snowfall this past weekend, which was it was nice. I mean, it's been pretty mild up until this far, and even still, it's pretty mild today, I think, for December. But seeing some like nice coat of white stuff on the ground was it was kind of nice, I have to admit. But make no mistake, I know that when it comes to blistering windy days, it I'm gonna be like, I, I hope it's summer. So anyway, on to today's episode, we have Ariel Hyatt, and it's all about forget the haters. So do you ever feel like you spend so much time and energy focusing on negative things people have to say about your work online, or there may be thousands of positive comments about your entrepreneurial service or product, but the few negative ones are the ones you think about at night. And at the same time, you are also faced with trying to be nice and liked by people. Ariel lays it all out, and she is all about forgetting the haters. And in this episode, you will learn to listen to Ariel's lessons. She learned about growth and reaching maximum capacity, realize the importance of consistent content, develop how to stay organized with shifting technologies, amongst so many other lovely things that we're going to talk about. So make sure you guys stay tuned for coming up next, Ariel Hyatt, Forget the Haters. All right. Arielle Hyatt is on the She Did Her Way podcast today. Arielle, welcome. Thank you. Uh, we are, well, I'm so excited to have you. But before we dive in, um, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, and then we'll talk about your journey and how you got there. So I do a, I do a lot of things. Tell us <laughs> they all, all. I love they it. They all go together. Um, so the thing that I do to earn my shekels is I run a digital PR firm. We are a marketing and PR firm based in New York City, and we help with entrepreneurs, mostly female entrepreneurs, and I also work with a lot of people in the arts, so the music business is where I came from and still part of my client base, and we help them get on blogs and podcasts and build their online footprints. We help with everything from finding your voice to social media to getting reviews on podcasts and on blogs. And we also do a fair bit of just branding, just because obviously nowadays that is a crucial part Mm. of what we do. And then the other thing that I do is I coach people through crowdfunding campaigns. Um, So that ties in a lot because a lot of entrepreneurs come to us and they need to raise money and we help them do that. I'm also an author. I've written four books, one of which we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, And I also do a lot of teaching. I teach at universities and I speak around the world, empowering people to take control of their own marketing and PR. Fantastic. Okay, now just tell us how it all got started. Love of music. I was very young when I started my business. I was only 24. 
and I had been working at a record label and at a management company and I got fired and I started my own PR firm. I was a traditional publicist for a long time and I could see very early on that traditional publicity was going to radically change, which of course it has over the years as the digital realm started its uprise. And I realized early on that in order to help the types of clients I was serving, which were mostly independent musicians and artists, I needed to find solutions for them. So I was an early adopter in the digital space. It was before it was even called social media. And I started writing a little blog and I started writing articles and a newsletter to try to help my community figure out what to do. The blogs and the newsletter turned into self-published book. The book turned into speaking gigs. The gigs turned into going to 12 countries and teaching all over the world. And so as I was doing that, the agency grew and it all sort of organically spread from my desire to help people understand this changing world. When you got fired, were you, what was your initial reaction? I wasn't surprised because my boss was totally crazy, as a lot of people in the music business are. Um, but I was a bit scared, of course, but I was really lucky. My, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so... There's a lot of really cool statistics, statistics about entrepreneurs, and there have been a lot of polls and research lately. And one thing that we're beginning to learn is most entrepreneurs have a role model in their family, mostly their fathers, but in my case, my mother, of people that have done it before them. So there's less fear. So I wasn't really scared to start my own business. Um, I was very excited and miraculously, one client led to the next and led to the next and led to the next. And I had a really good sort of sort of start when I started my own company. And I think that also has to do with being an entrepreneur. And this is something that even for those of us who never want to start a business, it's very important to understand contacts, relationships, and building them so that if you have a job that you leave, you get to take those relationships with you, whether or not you're fired or you choose to move on. What, when you were starting, I know you, you talked about traditional PR and then it had changed and evolved. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I, someone, um, if someone's not necessarily familiar with PR or how that necessarily works, that can you shed some light on that for us? Absolutely. So PR historically used to be the publicists and the publicity firms were the great gatekeepers between the media and the product, the good, the service, the company, the person, you know, whatever was seeking attention in the media. And there was a traditional formula. You hired the right publicist in the right industry, and they would write a press release, and they would send that press release out very specifically to the right journalists and to many of the wrong journalists. That's sort of how it used to go. <laughs> and um, you would then follow up. Did you get it? Or you would see where where it would stick. So if you sent out a big press release over the wire, you would hope that it would begin to get picked up in newspapers and magazines, on radio. And that was the old school approach. And it was private. Who were those journalists? Of course, 
with the advent of social media. Every journalist is now online. They almost have to be. Every, I mean, every time I turn on the television, I'm still amazed. Every single news news reporter, you know, tweet at us, give us your opinions, send us your Instagram photos, all of that. Um, we're seeing that it's all about access. So it's easier than ever before to get in touch with the media. You can pretty much find them on any social channel. And that has dramatically changed the game. You no longer need a publicist to be your gatekeeper. And you can very easily do a lot of PR on your own just by researching. You can find people on LinkedIn. You can find them everywhere. And if you know what you're doing and you know how to ask, the old school PR model clearly has been turned on its head. Hmm. Yeah, most, I mean, social media, it's everywhere. You can get it's such close instant access to people. Um, talk to us a little bit about when you started building your company in terms of like the structure and how it started and then where it's at today in terms of like your employees and how you structure it and then just the building in and of itself and that feat as an entrepreneur. So I started pretty small in my home at the time I was living in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Ooh. And it was really nice. And there was only a couple of us. And the company has always been pretty small. I've never had more than seven employees at one time. And of course, we use a lot of freelancers. And it grew organically up until about year 14, 15, when I decided that I was really going to go for it and see how big I could get it. I wanted to ramp up my revenue. I wanted to ramp up the game I was playing. And I had always done about half a million a year gross. So small enough. And I went. I decided I wanted to go for it and do the seven-figure year. Mm. And I did it. I put the pedal to the metal. I got a whole lot of new clients in the door, got a couple new employees. And it was interesting. I learned an incredible lesson about growth. And I know we read all over the papers that, you know, you should always set your company up for massive growth. And I don't actually subscribe to that theory. I think for many of us, good is good enough. And medium is a good size for a company. I was not happy when I was at maximum capacity grossing over a million dollars a year because I was exhausted all the time. I was constantly on sales calls. I was constantly facing clients, which I love to do, but it was just so amplified. So the lesson for me was I also had to sacrifice a lot of the reasons I decided to be an entrepreneur in the first place. I love to travel. I like to go and speak. Those aren't necessarily big money opportunities in the creative arts. So I'm not like the kind of keynote speaker that speaks corporate and gets 50 grand per talk. Mm -hmm. It a lot of it on my own dime. And I cut all the travel out. I cut all the things that gave me joy out going to see clients because I was just so busy building the company. And in the end, I realized that it was not making me happy. And I purposely scaled back. Wow. So what when you were growing um what for you like what came first getting the clients in the door and then 
bringing on uh, freelancers or was it hiring freelancers to go out and be salespeople to get the clients to come in the door and then to work the projects? Like, how did you as a business owner just make that decision when you were growing in that period? So I first hired a consultant that understood how to scale businesses, which was brilliant because I really didn't know how to do it. I, you know, I'd read the e-myth and taken some courses, but I hired someone whose expertise was growing companies. And her expertise was also looking at margins. So I actually knew how many clients I needed to get in the door and how much I needed to charge. And that was really helpful. And we scaled up both. We scaled up sales as well as support team at the same time so that as new clients came in the door, we could accommodate both. So we were pretty well planned out when the clients were coming in, we didn't get stuck going, oh my gosh, we have so many clients and not enough team to support them. That actually, uh, luckily, because I thought about it and planned it, went quite well. Mm. But when you're in a service-based business, especially, and you have a high-touch product like publicity and marketing is, you soon learn that as much as you systematize and as much as you put processes into place to help you, you're always going to have a client that just has more questions than another client, or you're going to have, you know, there's always the one compliant that, sorry, the one complainer, you know, there's Mm. the one client that, you know, it's not their fault. They paid for a service. They, they just are going to call and complain all the time, or they're just going to want more of you and they paid for more of you. So these are things that you need to begin to juggle as you get more and more clients. Um, and those were, those can be very soul-sucking things if you are in the services business. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of again processes that we did put into place. But there's always going to be, you know, three percent of your clients are going to be questioning or unhappy or just a little bit more squeaky than the other wheels. And those are the ones that when you have 150 clients instead of 20 that's when it can really take you out. And that was my lesson. Mm. Um, what was a, what's been the biggest hurdle for you to overcome in your business? It's such a good question. And you sent this to us before you sent this to me before. <laughs> and I was sort of trying to think, you know, which hurdle at what year? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, you know, share a few. <laughs> So I think something happens when you're a long-term entrepreneur. And what I'm talking about is not the person that starts business after business and sort of leaps from one thing to the other, which is exciting and can be very new, especially if you're in the startup world. For entrepreneurs like me who have ostensibly been doing the same thing for many, many years, one of the hurdles I found was you have to change what your vision and your purpose is as your company ages. So when I was young and I was in the music business, you know, my purpose was I wanted to go and be in the front row and be with the musicians and see all the bands. And I mean, I couldn't imagine a better job than the one I had. It was so exciting. And then, of course, I got older and going out seven nights a week became a little less appealing. (laughs) You don't (laughs) say. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I'll never forget the day that um, this was another lesson. You know, the band was on stage and they referred to me as a nice lady. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not that much older than you guys. And I realized, like, they're in their 20s. I was in my 30s. You know, they just looked at me as this older lady. It was hilarious. 
So I think you learn lessons as you have an aging company about where is your purpose, what turns you on, and the things that you were extraordinarily interested in and passionate about, those things might shift. And that's what I've had to learn is to not make myself wrong around those shifts. So it's okay that I don't want to go out seven nights a week and be in the front row of every show. I just had to learn, you know, what would be the ideal situation for me? What would be the client that I could serve that would give me that same joyful feeling? And so those were, they're kind of mini lessons, adjusting how you approach your work. Also, I think another thing, especially with the current rate of how we are expected to grow and social media, I think has a lot to do with this. We're consistently always supposed to be putting out content. We're Mm -hmm. supposed to be blogging, tweeting, and here here we are on a podcast. I mean, (laughs) you created this podcast and you have to keep going. You can't just stop. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I was just putting in social media before this podcast and I'm like, or like for content, like quotes and stuff on Twitter. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, can someone just do this? Like, well, actually someone probably in theory could, right? You like outsource and you do it that way. But then when you're bootstrapping it, it's like, nope, you're going to be doing it. But yeah, you're like, oh, I got to keep putting out content. Like this is a never ending thing. Yeah, it's an insatiable beast. And, and, you know, we are a content company, you know, you would hire us to do that. And I get it. I mean, our clients call us and they're like, I would rather stab a pencil in my eye than write one more tweet. And we understand. So I think that's another part of, of staying enthusiastic. And you have to kind of keep up with getting your marketing, getting your messaging, getting your branding, getting everything out into the world consistently. That's very, very important. How do you guys say so well this just popped in my head but how do you guys say so organized because when you um my fiance has a very high touch business cuz he does web agency and so they have clients and he handles a lot of them um like how do how do you guys and I just know how crazy it is sometimes for him so I can't even imagine with you guys as well having so many clients like how do you stay organized for the people that work for you and then how do you as the owner and the person who's driving the ship stay organized well cyber pr is actually a digital organizational tool that i built that keeps our campaigns organized mm. and we have all kinds of tricks you know we love using asana we love using google docs you know there's all kinds of things that you can do i think one of the biggest lessons i learned in my sort of evolution as an entrepreneur is it's all about processes and being organized because if your team doesn't know how to approach the things that you do in a systematic effective way you're not going to go very far so it's all about having you know check sheets I'm a big fan of the check sheet it's all about having processes it's all about keeping lists very clear especially if you're in PR or marketing obviously you have databases of people that you're consistently keeping. So it it's all about keeping all those things up to date, checking in with my team, making sure those processes work because sometimes they break down especially as as rules change and things change all the time. Just look at Facebook, you know, whatever we were doing last year is probably not working this year. So mm. we all have to adjust how we do any process. PR as well. 
you know, maybe you used to do it on the telephone. Now we're barely on the telephone. We're mostly in email or on social media. So things are consistently shifting. So it's about processes and it's about making sure that they stay fresh and updated as we go. Mm-hmm. What was something that you personally struggled in the beginning um, of entrepreneurship that you've um, learned to overcome, like behaviorally speaking? I just spoke on a panel about this at a amazing <laughs> conference here in New York called the Brave Summit. Ooh. And it was such an interesting topic because it was one that I never really thought about. And this is going to sound weird, but here, here we go. The panel was all about being nice and okay. how, how as women – it gets ingrained in us from very, very young age. Oh, nice little girl. You're such a, you know, there's all this, this things about being nice. And I think inherently we want to be nice. We want to be liked. We want people to like us, especially if you're putting your brand or your vision out there in the world. I think women especially have a different relationship with nice than, than men have. Hmm. And I think we take things not all of us, this is like a blanket statement I'm making, but I think we, any woman listening to this, you could probably look at your husband or your fiance, your partner, your dad, any man in your life and go, wow, they just don't take things in the way that we do. And I was so worried about being liked, making sure that I was nice, even if a client was not being nice to me or being abusive or being mean, I, I would take it and take it. And it was a lesson to learn like, wait, no, I can say no, I can give a refund, I can fire a client, I don't have to be nice all the time. Because sometimes you just have the wrong client. Sometimes it happens, you sign someone, it wasn't the right fit. I mean, every single one of us can relate to that. Not everyone is a perfect experience. And business is business. And sometimes it just doesn't go the way you wanted, you hope that's not the way. But I remember I would do sort of anything to please people who were unpleasable. And instead of just saying, here's your money back or here, let's, you know, find a better solution that will make this less upsetting and frustrating for everyone involved, I just would get so worried about what would they think if I didn't deliver at a certain level. And, and, you know, I don't want anyone to say that I'm not nice because they're saying that that other publicist isn't nice and that's horrible. You know, so you begin to really, that can really, really damage everything. It can cost you a lot of money. It can cost you a lot of sleep at night. It can cost you everything if you don't have those boundaries. What What was one of the hardest boundaries for you to instill and to practice? Well, the internet, with all the hating and flaming and trolling, and, you know, it's very hard when someone doesn't like something. I mean, I remember when I put out my first book, I was so excited about it, and I gave it to a lot of people, and I was looking to get reviews, and there was one person who I gave it to who wrote something very about my book on his blog. Of course, mm-hmm. there were... 20 or 30 people that wrote really, really nice things. (laughs) But we only pay attention to the negative one. Exactly. And there we are. There I was like focusing in on this, 
you know, dude. Meanwhile, if you read this guy's blog, he's not nice to everyone. It wasn't just like, you know, I was the one person that he chose. It was just that was his way. And it, I lost so much sleep and I was so upset and I was so hurt. And it just that that lesson there of like not everybody is going to love what you do not everybody's going to want to be your client not everybody's you know there's a lot of choices people could hire many many PR firms many many branding people and you're not always going to be their top one but that lesson very interestingly years later that same blogger printed an apology to me (gasps) And said, I was really like mean and I'm sorry and I didn't mean to offend you and I'm apologizing. And there you go. Like you never know. Don't waste your energy. Don't waste your time focusing on the one person that doesn't like it because you can find 20, 30, 40, 50, 100. In my case, thousands of people Mm -hmm. that like, I get 50,000 people a month reading my blog. They probably like it. That's my assumption or they wouldn't be coming back. Right. So, yeah, and I feel like I've I've learned over time that majority of the time people are not thinking about you and then if people say anything, it's usually not even about you. It's about something that's going on with them. Totally. Internally and, and personally. Tell us about um, when did you make like a bad investment in your business? Or like it, it could be like a – a bad hire it could be a financial bad investment but like when did you really make a bad decision and how did you overcome it and like what what did you learn from it I think that the biggest mistakes I've made is when I have hires employees or freelance people that are not enthusiastically delivering I always tried to make it better. Let's see how we can work together to make you better at this or to make you, and I'm not talking about, you know, like there was a grammatical error in something or there was something little, but like genuinely the person is not doing well. I would definitely spend a lot of time and energy and effort investing in people that really didn't fit the job, really couldn't handle the job, because I inherently believe that people are good and they mean well and they want to do their best. And I took a lot of that on, especially in my earlier days. And when I look back, it was just, it would have done that person a huge favor if I had just said, listen, this is not the job for you. You're not delivering it 100%. I think it's time for you to start looking elsewhere. Instead of spending time and energy trying to make them better you cannot force people Mm -mm. employees and the other thing you can't force clients either i mean everybody knows that in order to be successful at social media you need to post on facebook four to six times a week you need to tweet three times a day you need to put something on instagram five or six seven eight times a week we know these things this is not new news and when I was sitting there fighting with clients and fighting with clients, like, listen, like, I, I can't do my job until you do your job. There has to be a point where you go, okay, this client is just not willing to come to their own party. So I can either make this client wrong for this, or I can do the best I can do 
with what I have to work with. And those are choices because in choice A, where you're making the client wrong and they're not giving you the material you need to do your job, and I'm sure your fiance feels this all the time with web stuff, like they're n- they don't de- they don't deliver the assets that are needed to build the website. It's not his fault, <laughs> right? This is like classic web design 101. Yeah. They're just busy, right? It's just this he can make the client wrong or he can be like, "Great, like, you know, the clock's ticking and yeah. you can You know, you can mess it up all you want. So I think that that's another very interesting lesson. Like everybody is in an agreement. I'm in an agreement to come on your podcast and and be smart and witty and cheery and say interesting things. That's the agreement. Like if you're going to make an agreement with someone, stick to your side of it. And we can suffer so much when people don't keep their end of the agreement. I have a contract that says, you're going to use your social media or we're not going to do PR very well. You sign the contract. Therefore, I'm not going to get, well, I, I always do get upset. That's not true. But I'm, I'm going to try not to get, you know, hysterical over the fact that I could have done a better job if only the client had done their side of it. Because just we're human and we're overwhelmed and we don't always, you know, operate at a thousand percent. It's just sometimes that's how it is. Yeah. And I've, I've heard of, um, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say my fiance does this, but then I'm like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't. But I know um, some people will, if the the clients that might be a little bit more difficult that are taking up more time, it's, and like I've heard this on podcasts too, is that you like throw out an astronomical amount. And if they still want to work with you, then that's a way that people, and I'm not saying like that's what you should do or anything like that. I'm from a speaker standpoint um, on the podcast. That's just what one of my, I think one of my friends are podcast, another podcast story, but like they're saying that they just threw out an astronomical number and the client either accepted or or didn't. But then if the client did accept, they're like, well, at least I'm getting majorly compensated for my time for the, the craziness and the time consumption that they have too. Right. So as someone who comes from the music industry where I've worked with very famous household name artists, I can I can say for me that even for all the money in the world, even for the high price client, nothing is worth getting texts in the middle of the night, getting hysterical phone calls, getting, you know, we don't cure cancer for a living. We're simply music publicist people. You know, I was like, I was like, wanted to be like, this cannot be happening. I remember once I was in Colorado, I was in Boulder and a band called me in the middle of the night screaming. One of the band members had left their bass at a club in Aspen, which was a five-hour drive in the middle of the night from where I was. And they were like, you got to go get it. And I'm like, nope, actually, no, I don't. So, you know, look, all the money in the world sometimes is not going to compensate. But I think that that is one way of looking at it. You can be paid very richly to put up with a more high-maintenance client, or you can just decide, like, you can just choose clients that are fabulous and wonderful and come to their own parties and are collaborative partners. I mean, that's my ideal client is you come to the phone and I come to the phone and we are both as excited to be working with one another. It is collaborative. You are excited about our ideas. We are excited about your ideas. We complement each other and we push your project and your vision forward. That's the best client. Yeah, take those all day. That those will, those will give you good energy to work with. They won't drain your energy. <laughs> um, what is something that uh, you feel like female entrepreneurs encounter that maybe 
Um, and maybe I don't know if I want to say encounter, but um, like an added bonus that because we are female and we're choosing entrepreneurship, like this is the advantage that we have. This is actually a perfect tie-in to talk about my new book, which is all about crowdfunding. And as I was researching for CrowdStart, and I was researching the science of social media and the science of crowdfunding and how to have a successful campaign, and I, I put it all down and I made this system of how to crowdfund, I found out something incredible. And what I found out was this. Women succeed more than men in crowdfunding. Really? It's so cool. And the reason why is women are not afraid to ask as much as men are. And think about it. Think about your mom and your dad and you got lost in the car and your dad would never ask for directions and your mom was like, why don't you just pull over and just ask that man? <sighs> I mean, that was the story of my life growing up. Um, women ask each other for things all the time. Can you watch my kid while I do this? Do you have a cup of sugar? Can I borrow your blah, blah, blah? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm acting like we're all housewives or something, but we're not. But I think women in business, we just ask each other for things much, much, much more easily. Oh. In my experience, women don't keep a checks and balances system the way men do. And I see this with my husband. Whenever anyone does anything that's nice for us, he's always like, well, they took, they invited us, so we have to invite them. And I'm like, honey, it's, it's it's all universal. It all comes back around. And of course we'll invite them, but we don't have to keep a mental check sheet. Ooh, and, but I never noticed or thought of that. That's something I see a lot with clients. Like they feel almost indebted in direct ways if they're men more than women. But the cool thing about us ladies is we are not as hesitant around crowdfunding. We're better at asking we're better at directly asking people. I think we have the softer touch. And this is why, you know, most women are publicists. We're asking, literally, a publicist just asks for favors all day long. That's all it is. <laughs> um, because mostly publicity is not paid. You are asking journalists and, and writers and everyone to consider. And if you ask in an aggressive manner that there's no opportunity for the other person in your ask, you ain't getting anywhere with that ask. So... This is really cool, and this is something I think that is spectacular about women. Women ask. Yeah, that. So, I I was totally not expecting. I never even thought of that, and I love that. The it's definitely like changed in my mind the way thinking about that. So then tying that into your crowdfunding, what talk to us about that book. So CrowdStart is a book that I wrote because I did my own crowdfunding campaign and I had already coached a few clients through crowdfunding campaigns and was familiar with the process. But until you do it yourself, you will never understand how challenging it is and how hard it is. So we might be really good at asking. However, there is a science to having a successful crowdfunding campaign. And you can read a lot of articles about it, but I didn't find any definitive step-by-step -step guide. I found a lot of cool statistics, like how much the average crowdfunding campaign makes. And the answer is only $7,000, which is not a lot of money, especially 
when you go to the media and you see, you know, so-and-so raised a million dollars or the coolest cooler or the pebble watch or the, you know, the movie that got made. And that's not normal. Those are outliers. The average campaign is $7,000. The average donation is about $70. I mean, there's all these things that I was discovering as my campaign unfolded. But the real reason why I wanted to write this guide was it is so hard to stay focused and on point for 30 straight days when you feel like you're asking everyone in the world to give you money and everything comes into question. Your self-worth, was this idea good enough? Was I good enough? Was I smart enough? Was it okay? Maybe I shouldn't have asked for this. Maybe I should have just tried to get a loan. Maybe everyone hates me. You know, by around day 10, when no one is contributing, <laughs> you think, okay, this is the biggest- Scrap it. <laughs> right. I'm just going to get go to bed for the next 20 days and hide under the covers. And I kept seeing this with the clients I was coaching. And I realized that without a system and a process- and a check sheet. Just like we were talking about how to run a business, that is what CrowdStart is. It is a 30-day plan. What do you do on day one? What do you do on day six? What do you do on day 12? What do you do on day 30? How do you roll out this campaign? And how do you keep yourself from getting overwhelmed and upset? How do you keep your little voice? I, I named the little voice, little nasty, the one that goes, you're not good enough to, to raise all this money. Why mm-hmm. did you, you know that? So there's a whole chapter on shutting up your inner demons. There's a whole chapter on exactly how many social posts, how many times a day, what exactly should you say? I even look at specific words that you should use when you're asking. There's so much science behind sales and marketing and asking. And I put it all into a systematized book. I know I was going to say this sounds like a book anyone should pick up even if you're not doing crowdfunding. I'm like, I think I should buy this book. Actually, the first part is all about how to get your social media and your marketing messaging all on par because obviously that's the the base for starting a crowdfunding campaign. So it's actually intended for anyone that's just interested in upping their marketing game. Yeah, well, I definitely will uh, participate in that. (laughs) For sure. I will. I definitely am interested in the book. And I I know that um, it's going to provide a lot of value. What, um, what's your most memorable war story? Like the closest you've ever been to like wanting to throw in the towel? Um, What's that been like? For a small business like mine, I think the most painful part of being, you know, the head of a company, I don't have any partners, it's really my company, and then I have employees, is when I've lost the good employees, the ones that I really invested a lot of time and love and energy into. And I think those are the the hardest losses. Because I'm a small agency. I don't give six-figure salaries. I am in New York City. (laughs) There are many, many places where many young people can get a six-figure salary. So I'm acutely aware that my agency is a great agency if you're in the first four, five, six years of your career. And what happens, it's just evolution, was people leave. And it's hard every time they do. And those are the those are the stories that you know you can read there's 
Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn wrote has written a lot about this, and I think it's it's important to read. Your employees are not your family. As much as you want them to be and as much as you invest, they're not your best friends. As much as you spend all your waking hours with them and you can have great camaraderie. And especially when you're young and your employees are, are your age or they're similar they're just similar to you in some way. I think those are the, those are my war stories was the day that my star employee walks in and says, listen, I just, someone just doubled my salary and I knew that I couldn't match it or Mm -hmm. it was just time for them to move on. I had a fabulous PR director who was with me for five years and she had a baby and it was time for her to move on. And even though you know, none of that was acrimonious. It was all great. And I wish them well. And I still go out for drinks with them all the time. It's just the pain of investing in someone and having them, of course, they can't stay with you forever, but having them move on. um, When they do great work, and when you have a really simpatico relationship, I think it can be that that's my hardest war stories. I mean, sure, I could talk about the individual campaigns that didn't go as well as I wanted, or the time I had to give a refund. But that's you know, we do, we see a lot of clients every year, but I only see two employees or three employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What, a um, couple last questions uh, before we wind down. What is one piece of advice you want my audience to take away based on your experience as an entrepreneur? I think we've touched on it in this talk so far. And I would say, don't worry so much about what everyone else thinks. I know this is, again, it can be really hard for women. I mean, don't go out and be nasty just to be nasty. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we do spend a lot of time just feeling really cautious. And if you've got something to say and you really want to say it and you've got a strong vision for what your brand is and for what your company does and for what you want to put out into the world – don't doubt yourself. Don't worry. Not everyone's going to love it. That's just human nature. And not everybody needs to love it. You don't need 100% of the world to love whatever it is you're doing. You just need whatever you need per year, right? So you need 100 people to be your client or 300 people or 10 people or however you run your business. And think of it that way. And, you know, I wish I had learned that lesson, the lesson of boundaries, the lesson of not being so super nice all the time and not not saying yes to absolutely everything that comes your way. Like You know when something is wrong. You know when it's not going to go well and you want to say yes because you either need the money or the person challenges you in a specific way and you think, no, I can do my best. Don't do that and don't worry about that. When you say no to someone, it's an opportunity for a better thing to come along. Mm, girl preach <laughs> I, I'm like yeah I get it like absolutely and then I like as you're saying that I'm like okay what are the things that I probably said yes to that I should probably have been like mm, I need to be more focused um, okay so the last question I have is of course aside from your books that you've written is there one book that in particular that has impacted you what and it doesn't have to necessarily be business it can be any book 
There, there are two books I want to talk about. One is a book which I don't know why this hasn't become a best-selling business book. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You. <gasps> yes. By Cal Newport. When I read that book, I just had wished that someone had given it to me. I mean, I don't even think he wrote it 10 years ago, but I just wish that I had had the information in that book. And just for those of you that don't know, that book talks about passion and how passion is BS in many ways. Like we all, like we, we there's this crazy thing. I don't know if it's the news or the media or what it is, but it, there's this thing that we all learn that like you have to follow your passion. And I was lucky. Music was my passion and I followed it. But really... That wasn't what made me good at business. What made me good at business was I'm actually a good communicator. I'm good at PR. I was good at convincing journalists to write about my clients. I was organized. That was really what was driving my company as much as it seemed like what was driving it was my love of music. Yes, I loved the clients, but passion can be confusing. And if you ask most people what they're passionate about, you know, they're going to tell you opera, cooking, sports. I love music. I love puppies. I love my kids. You know, they're not going to say I'm really passionate about writing a fabulous pitch. I'm I'm really passionate about, you know, how organized my editing skills are or whatever it is you're contributing to the world. And that is what Cal Newport so incredibly talks about in So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the other book and I think every woman should have this book next to their bed. It's called Creating a Charmed Life. Ooh, I've never heard of that one. It's a tiny little book, and it's by a woman who I actually know. Her name is Victoria Moran. And this book is out of print, but you can get it for about a dollar on eBay or on Amazon. And it's just a tiny little book. And it's sense, sense, I just grabbed it. It's next to my bed. Sensible spiritual secrets every busy woman should know. Ooh. And it's just these little lessons, these little lessons. And there's, there's, I think there's over almost a hundred of them in this fabulous book. And you can just pull this book open and just read, you know, one a day. Ooh, and uh, do you have the book with you right now? I do. Will you read us one? I will. Yes. Okay. Um, Number 37, random opening to the page. Of course, now I have to put my reading glasses on. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay, it says, be specific. Being specific invites into your experience what you really want. My favorite sentence in the whole book of wonderful sentences, Thomas More's Care of the Soul, is this. The soul thrives on the particular and the vernacular. Reading that line was a watershed experience for me. I'd previously thought of the soul's concerns as nebulous and ethereal. The idea that my soul, the purest essence of myself, could flourish amidst the goings-on of real life was a revelation. So then she goes on. This is a, Each one is a couple of pages. But Ooh. basically, the, the summary is, as you develop the grit to be more precise in your own speech and intentions, acquire some extra metal for facing the facts life presents to you in their unadorned and non-watered-down state. Ask direct questions like, how much do I owe? And exactly what do you want me to do? Expect direct answers. Engage in direct action. Expect a life of more clarity, certainty, and peace. Um, buying that 
So 37, be specific, but there's ask for what you want, put up with some discomfort, obey the laws, razzle-dazzle on occasion. So they go from being whimsical to to practical. Oh, I love this one, number 61. Welcome yourself home. This is your home we're talking about, a place so sacred, so private, and so yours that you need a key to get into it. So there she goes. She just talks about how do you make a beautiful experience in in your own house. Anyway, it's a great book. I love that. I Yes. Girlfriend is buying that one for sure. There you go. Now I've got, I got to like keep read. I got to read to keep up with all these because I just, yeah. See, as we're talking, these are reading books. Like these books are, are exciting for sure. So, but this is, um, Arielle, this has been fantastic. I so appreciate your presence and your energy and insight and to business and everything that you've shared. So thank you so much. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, I'll be in touch with you too. Sounds great. Okay. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the She Did It Her Way podcast. Did you like this episode? Head on over to iTunes.com to leave us a rating and a review. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out SheDidItHerWayPodcast.com where you can subscribe to our email list so you can receive the inside scoop on our latest episode released each Monday. Now, do us a favor and go make it a great week.